and he takes a step and walks the other way. And I'm like, holy shit, there is the Bushmaster. <laughs> and it was like, he was closer to it than I was, but he couldn't see it because of the palm frond. And it was like a nine, 10 foot long Bushmaster, as big around as a garbage can coiled up. It, it was amazing. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. So, welcome to From the Ground Up podcast. And as usual, PortCityPythons.com. We do have t-shirts available, including the one that I'm wearing now. And you're not wearing one. Way to go. There you go. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> and, uh, it. We have some animals available. Obviously, the shipping window is closed. If you wanted us to hold them, we could do so. Otherwise, sorry, guys. No snakes for Christmas or any silliness unless you live in Pennsylvania and want to come pick them up. Right. <laughs> and then uh, if you guys are interested, especially if there's any of our breeder friends, we have certified organic cocoa chip that we do have for sale. So, um, like we're having, we could ship it out if we get a pallet and you guys have like a few friends in the area that want to split it. Or if you're big enough to have a whole pallet yourself, then we can do so. Otherwise, it's kind of hard to ship. Yeah. But anyone local. Yeah, because I've seen them like for sale, like similar products for sale, but it's like $27 shipped. And then even then, I couldn't, it would cost me like $60 to ship, to ship it anywhere. It. I don't have yeah. like a, a commercial rate as far as shipping, shipping. goes with FedEx or. So it's just easy to like do that. local. If you want it local. Yeah, sorry, guys. <laughs> or we could ship a whole pallet, you know, somewhere else for a lesser bit of a price and you can kind of. Split it with your friends. Other than that, other than that, you're rambling. That's <laughs> a good the podcast. Story, huh, guys? You like that? Uh, so today we have on Jason Hood of Snakes Unlimited. So Jason works with oh, I don't want to mess it up, but Spilodes as well as um, I believe they're called Neotropical Bird Snakes, as well as the Black-headed Python. Did I mess it up, Jason? No. All right, cool. you, you avoided it completely. That was perfect. <laughs> I was I was avoiding Latin names while also getting the catch-all Spilodes. So, yeah, so that works. So, could you give us a little overview of what you work with? Uh, I have, uh, like you said, the Neotropical Bird Snakes. The Latin on that's Phyronax bacillinotis. It used to be Sustis, which was so much cooler, but because of the guy in Australia screwing up all the taxonomy, they wouldn't allow him to keep Sustis. The, I talked to the guy who actually did the, the main author on the paper. He tried to keep Sustis, which was just a, a nicer genus name, but um, I can't think of his name. Um, the idiot in Australia that decides Poser. to name everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Poser's completely screwed everything up, including screwing up one of my favorite uh, species or genus names in Sustis. But um, then I deal with, uh, like you said, blackheads and then the Spilodes pilatus and sulfurous. With, with Sulfurus formerly being in Sustis, uh, they were the nominant uh, species, so they got moved over to, when they got moved over, that that's what sunk Sustis down to Phyronax. Um, I have Womas, I have some Hondurans, uh, I have some other stuff. Oh, bears, rat snakes. Um, but I've kind of narrowed down a little bit because I've expanded out my blackheads to a stupid number of animals. <laughs> where I can't even breed them all at this point. So, yeah, 
That's what I'm working with at this point. And so did you start off with these rare species or, I mean, how'd you get into large colubrids as well as obviously large pythons? Same as everybody else. I did the pyramid scheme and started out, you know, poor and broke and buying and selling and trading in corn snakes and milk snakes and a couple tax returns and uh, payment plans later, I had blackheads. Uh, a friend of mine turned me on to the Susties when they were still Susties, and that allowed me to get into those because they their price points a lot easier to deal with. And then we, because of that connection, uh, another friend of ours who we met through the whole uh, love of Spilotes and the the what's now Firenax, we were able to find captive born Sulfurus, and at that point we bought the whole clutch what was available those were the only ones that had been available uh up until i started breeding again for like a decade wow so but yeah the typical pyramid scheme where you you buy and flip and sell and try to get up the ladder to what you want and can afford is you know i I don't have the the giant income with my real job to be able to afford everything i want so I, i try to be uh forgiving in the the payment plans and letting other people have a chance to get into some higher end animals as much as I can help them to the point where I feel like I'm abused at some of these people, but it is what it is. Absolutely. So when did you start breeding these animals? Uh, With the blackheads, I started in 2009. Yeah. 2008, 2009 was my first year breeding them. Um, the Spilotes, I actually, the tiger rats, I didn't breed for, until the first time this last season. Uh, I've just never had healthy animals of adult size up until this past season. Uh, Firenax, I bred the first time in 2014, I think. And then I went on a dry spell for four years before this year. Mm. And I kicked out nine clutches this year. But again, it was just getting animals up to adult size that were healthy. You know, the, the basic key of everything is healthy animals that are adults. And everything else is pretty easy at that point. Now, that sounds like a lot of rare animals that, I mean, you got to be a particular person to be into them in the first place, right? Like how, what's, what's the market for these types of things? Uh, I think the market's kind of limitless because they're awesome and talking to people about them it's, it's just a lack of knowledge people don't not want them they just don't know they exist you know it's once i start talking to people they'll, they'll see my animals on display at the shows and they beeline across a show and come up and go what the hell is that when they start talking to me then it's it, that's an easy sale at that point whether they want them at that day or not it's a whole other question but they eventually i mean they obviously want the animals they just don't know anything about them and hopefully they go home and try to look stuff up which sucks because there's nothing to look up they're that uncommon but um my friend gavin brink and i have been mulling around the idea of putting together an article for fire and axe notice for years john anderman was going to put out something for the spilotes pilatus uh michelle lady dragon smith and Dottie donnie uh morty her husband um i'm screwing up his name your sick uncle morty we always went by on all the things that's screwing my head up but they put out something on their primo reptilia years ago for tiger rats so there's some stuff out there and, and basically the those the the pupping snake group all kind of go with the same care information as the tiger rats 
minor changes here and there, but it's kind of see what you get and, and, and change your husbandry as needed. Awesome. So I want to like, naturally I'm going into more questions about them, but really if you guys want to hear in depth, especially about the colubrid side, you guys can listen to Jason was just on <laughs> Corrales radio. And then he was also on NPR, which covered a lot more of the blackhead stuff. So what was your question? Oh, I didn't have one. Oh, you were giving me some hands. I was hands telling signals. you to stop yelling. I was oh, trying to sorry, secretly man. not bring it up on the podcast, trying to tell you to talk quieter. But All right, okay. I'll be quiet. Okay, you just... So, Jason, I mean, but what I did hear on those interviews is you kind of hinted that you've done some traveling. So have you always traveled and kind of where have you been and do you herp during these travels? Um, I've done the U.S. with Arizona and Texas because uh, if you read – Caulfield's book, uh, Snakes snakes and Snake Hunting are the Keeper and the Kept. You have to go to Texas. You have to go to Arizona. I haven't gone to Okatee just because it's so similar to, to Florida. But those are just classic books that if you read them and you don't go travel, you're killing yourself. But um, in Arizona, we were lucky enough that we, if you read Caulfield's uh, book on Arizona and the Gardner Mine Trail, he talks about walking up the trail, going to the abandoned mine that's there and next to a piece of tin seeing an Arizona mountain King. We did that almost like, I can't, it was like 50 years or 40 years to the day that he made that same trip in his, in his book. And we saw a freaking Arizona mountain King, like two feet to the left of exactly where he described it. And that was amazing. That was like worth the trip. But then I got to go to also Peru um my wife's from peru so i got to go to the amazon jungle once down there uh i definitely want to do some more traveling it's just a matter of having the funds and figuring out a time of year i can not be around the animals where i'm not going to be screwing up my breeding or hatching or feeding or everything else with the animals so say when you're going to texas or arizona i mean what's better are you looking for colubrids or rattlesnakes i mean what's your ideal animal that that you found Besides that, Arizona Mountain King, of course. <laughs> All of them, man. It's it, it's so – I'm mostly – did most of my opening in Florida. Did some in Illinois when I lived in Chicago. We would go down to Snake Road. That's an experience all on its own. But just being able to get out in the field and just see the different animals and see that rattlesnakes do not behave like rattlesnakes on TV when you see them in the wild because they're in their native, native habitat. They're, they're in their natural range. They know what's around them. They know that they have scent trails laid out all around them where they they know where they're safe. And as long as you don't touch them, they're chill, they're calm, they're relaxed. And they're just totally different animals than what you see pulled out of a box off camera and thrown in front of the, the actor on screen portraying, portraying a, a naturalist. So it, it's in my, my experience, it's worth it to go out there and, and just see stuff. And the more research you do and the, and the more you can like Especially like like I said, when you can read books and then go to those places, because Arizona hasn't changed that much. The cities have, but the, the natural areas where Caulfield went haven't. So you can still go to the like the exact spot and nothing's changed other than there's some more garbage out there from people leaving trash behind. But other than that, everything else is the same. So to me, that's amazing. Um, I, I just love the natural world and trying to get out and and, and just encounter different things. I always, and I always tell people that like, it's so much different than 
having the perspective of you think that snakes just live in a tub or you, they come from deli cups. So, I mean, like, what can you take from finding them in the wild and kind of bring back into your own collection? Uh, see, there's different things you can you can observe in the wild to give you a better idea. But I think just the, just a more a better appreciation for what the animals are. I don't I don't think you appreciate them in a tub as much as you can seeing them in the wild and seeing what they're really like. Uh, they're they're different animals in captivity for sure. So and then getting into the rainforest, just the appreciation of the fact that the rainforest is not ninety degrees; it's it's cooler. And to to understand that, and that if you have a rainforest species and you're keeping it in the nineties, it, that's not its natural habitat. So and also one thing that was amazing in the rainforest. Have you been to the rainforest before? Yeah, <laughs> not anywhere no. close. <laughs> so I was there in the dry season. And which is supposed to be terrible for herps. You're not supposed to find stuff. We had an amazing trip. But every night at like between 10 and midnight, the trees would all just have so much condensed moisture on them. It would be a light rain in the jungle. And that to me was just like, at the time I was keeping a lot of Amazon tree boas. And I thought, man, if I could just get a misting system and have it set to go on at night. Because people, most people have their mysticism kind of go on at random times. And that's, I don't think that's as natural as you could get with just the fact that all these trees are just condensing water all over them and dropping it off their leaves every night between 10 and midnight. It's just a, a, a light mist of a rain in the dry season where there's no rain. It's, it, it was a, a kind of an amazing mind-opening experience to see that. And you kind of hinted at the temperature. So, I mean, what is the temperature when it's, you know, misting out ballpark? I was there in the dry season, which happens to be the winter season as well. Um, I was there in our summer, so their winter. And it, it was, we had a couple nights where it got into like the 50s and 60s. But for the most part, the nights were in the, the high 60s, low 70s. And the daytime temperature, it was 70s to low 80s. For most of my trip there in the summer it just goes up to like the mid 80s it doesn't get blistering it's hot but the hot. humidity is 110 percent. i mean you're you walk outside and you're decoded with humidity but it's not for us it feels horribly unbearably hot but it's really not hot it's just crazy humid it's kind of like florida heat versus arizona heat right you can be in arizona at 100 degrees or texas at 100 degrees and it's not the same as florida 100 degrees or 100 degrees you're going inside texas 100 degrees you're like oh this ain't that bad you know <laughs> it's hot but it's not it's that dry heat just not the same yeah and conversely the wet heat is most much more unbearable of, of course now were you able to see animals even though the conditions were like that oh yeah no i had a <laughs> a buddy of mine brian Sousa, i've been going to the um ecuadorian rainforest and leading bird surveys every christmas for like eight or nine years and i mean it's not the same jungle or of course but um i was like you know what what can i look for what should i do you know what can i expect and him and another guy i spoke with gave me like amazing advice some of the best advice if you go to a rainforest the best advice i got was appreciate everything don't be a, a, a reptile snob or a snake stop snob and just be kind of douchey and ignore everything else. Pay attention to the bugs. Like the bugs, there, there can be up to like 40 species of ant on one tree. Never mind every different bush that's down there. So that was amazing. Um, but then 
we got out and we were, I was doing a, the, the group I went with to save money. I went with a, a study group who was doing ecological surveys down there. And I assisted in them with them with that. And we were doing this, in my mind, a horrible survey where you like take a step and you just inventory everything around you, every living creature. Oh and you, it's supposed to take you a minute to go a meter or something. I mean, that's I can't painful. That. Yeah, no. So I'm zipping around the, the jungle back and forth on our, because there was also a, a, a um, string through the forest that we were supposed to stay on that string and do this dead straight line for a hundred meters. And it's supposed to take, I think an hour to do the full hundred meters. No. So I'm zipping around back and forth and I look over and I see there's a hole that looks like a, a gopher tortoise burrow to me. I'm a Florida guy. It's a gopher tortoise burrow. And I'm looking at it and I can see a cobweb over it, but on one corner, like half of it's broken. I'm like, that's like the picturesque, um, you know, even when you see paintings of naturalistic paintings where there's a, a, a diamondback outside of a gopher's burrow, the burrow has the spider web over it and there's a one little corner. I'm like, this is, this is so picturesque. This is like ridiculous. And I said to the guy, I'm like, I've got like a Bushmaster type hole over here. He's like, you got a Bushmaster? I said, no, I got a hole that the Bushmaster <laughs> lives in. And they've, I'm there, this is like my third or fourth day in the jungle. They were there on a 40-day trip, and this is like day 34 for them. So they were so over everything. They were just miserable being out in the jungle that long. And they just and, wanted some excitement. They were really wanted you to find a Bushmaster. Yeah. But then I, I like, as I turn and look to the guy, he's standing on the other side of a, a fallen palm frond, and he takes a step and walks the other way. And I'm like, holy shit, there is the Bushmaster. <laughs> And it was like, he was closer to it than I was, but he couldn't see it because of the palm frond. And it was like a nine, 10 foot long Bushmaster, as big around as a garbage can coiled up. It, it was amazing. But it, it, that's something like, I'll, my, like, back to my buddy, Brian, he had never seen a Bushmaster in all the time that he's been to the jungle over like a nine, 10 years or something at that point. The next season he went out he found one, but it's just one of those things where like, whatever you're looking for, you're never going to find it. And he was looking for it. And I was hoping, you know, because it's a Bushmaster, I was hoping to see one. But I was really hoping to see Spilotes or, um, uh, em, you know, the, um, the Emerald Tree Boas or Hortulanus. I, I was really wanting to see them. And I didn't, but I got a fucking Bushmaster. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't get better than that. That's like everybody's ultimate goal. Um, right after we left, we were only out there for five days. Right after we left, uh, they spotted a jaguar the day after we left on the beach in front of where we'd go down to get on and off the boats. Wow. They came back in the boat and they couldn't land the boat because the jaguar was just sitting on the landing beach. And then that night, they got an emerald tree boa in the camp. Like it came right down to the, one of the cabins. So it was an amazing location to be in. But in my five days there, we saw like 20 snakes, 20, 20, 20, 20 to 30 snakes probably. What and, was oh, what you well, saw the most if you didn't see things like Corallus? Um, the Iman toadies, uh, the, the uh, blunthead tree snakes, which, uh, again, are one of these. The first one you see, if you see one, is the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life because they're this delicate twig-like three to four foot long snake that's twig thin and has this little bulbous head and giant eyes. But it just doesn't make sense. Like, you look at it, it doesn't make sense physically like it, it shouldn't be able to do anything it's just so skinny and fragile looking and it shouldn't be able to survive but they're common 
So the first one you see is just amazing. And then people quickly get over it and just like they're bored with it because they see too many of them. I don't understand that because they're they're just simply amazing creatures. I don't know how you can get bored with them, but everybody does. We saw a bunch of those. Um, the the birders brought back a Kribo uh, that was chewing on a rainbow boa. And the Kribo was like, or not a Kribo, a uh, Musarana. The Musarana was like seven foot long. It's massive. Like, wow. I'm six, eight. There's a picture of me holding it that uh, was in John Michaels used in his article uh, that it's, you can tell it's a massive animal, even with my big ass holding it. And then, uh, then they also came back with a big yellowtail Kribo, which was an amazing looking yellowtail Kribo. Um, so it, it was a, a great trip. Yeah, definitely sounds like it. So, I mean, at this time, were you keeping Spilotes? Yeah. So yeah, was, was that like your, you know, what you wanted to see the most? And then how did you not, I mean, from Spilotes, it seems like a natural jump to be in the Kribos or some of the other large colubrids that you saw there. I would love Kribos. I have too many difficult feeders on my list already. And they're just another difficult feeder, another large cage needing animal. So it's just a matter of getting the time, the space, and the, the the spare time to be able to deal with the babies if I were actually to get them. Um, but yeah, no, one of the, so like the universal truth with, with field herping is whatever you want to see, the people who don't want to see it are going to see it. Okay. So if you're doing something in the jungle, the birders or the, the, the bug people are going to see whatever species you want to see. And you're going to see like, like I, I the, the butterfly girl saw a giant uh, yellow belly puffing snake, the Splodes sulfurus. And she came back and she's like, oh, so I saw this snake and it was like, I don't know, it was yellow for the first half and like black at the last half. And it's like, I don't know, 10, or she was like in meters. So like three or four meters long, what would that be? I'm like, where was it? Holy shit, where was it? She's like, I don't know, like 2000 kilometers that way. And just no concern, she was just curious what it was. And I went flying out there, of course, a highly <laughs> active snake was not going to be there an hour and a half later, but I went charging for it. And of course, it was a giant sulfurous, which is what I wanted to see out there. But um, yeah, and the bird, like if you, you go out to Arizona, you'll run across all these birders and they're going to see whatever species you're looking for, they'll have it on their camera to show you and they'll tell you where it was and it won't be there when you get there. But conversely, the reptile people find all the birds they want to see, so just how things work in in the natural world for some reason yeah and now did it give you i mean any insight to what they're eating i mean what kind of mammals you saw around there or anything like that there was the not really because they're they're diurnal the um most of the mammals seem to be nocturnal there there's the little tiny i don't know if you saw any pictures on my facebook but there's a the little tiny um arboreal possums that are like these puffy mouse things that are just adorably cute and they were coming into our cabin at night and stealing our our like a little nutrigrain granola bars they were coming in and pulling them out so they also hang the hang those in a bag so they can't get to them and the next night the thing's coming out of the bag oh my hanging god like a, a garbage bag handle eating them anyway it's like but they were adorable you can't you can't get upset about it really and there's a ton of bats there so i think they're, they're probably mowing down a bunch of bats the bats just get up underneath the palm fronds and just hang out against the trees so they're right there for them but predominantly they're supposed to be eating uh nestling birds birds and bird eggs and just getting into the nest eating them and getting out of there as quick as they can 
Well, because what I've heard, they do have pretty quick metabolisms. And like you said, they're super active. So it's Mm -hmm. like they must have to eat a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're eating probably every other day down there. Smaller meals every two days, probably. But that's I can't do that in captivity. It's that means they would poop every single day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, because I've talked to Kribo guys and some of them will do every two to three days. And it's like. That is just crazy. I don't even like doing it once a week, let alone that that much, you know? Cleaning or feeding? Both. I mean, yeah, (laughs) if I I did it every other – yeah, like you said, it would end up being every day that you're cleaning. Yeah, and they they, because of fast metabolism, they have really wet, loose stools, and they tend to be more smelly, whereas like the – pythons and boas give you these beautiful little dog turds that are dry it's like <laughs> that's awesome that's easy but not none of these, these guys give you the big wet bird poops basically nice so i mean you had hinted a little bit about you don't seem to use tubs and i don't know what is your kind of thoughts behind that or at least for your adults I don't use tubs just because I, I don't think they make good habitat for the animals. And I don't think the animals behave as, I mean, nothing's going to behave naturally in captivity. Just let's be realistic. And as um, Bob Henderson pointed out, one of his books uh, uh, for Amazon's, he had an illustration of a box that was two feet tall, but three feet wide in a tree or a box that was, two feet um, wide and three feet tall in a tree. It's like, neither is a tree. So (laughs) do whatever you want. But for what we can do for them, giving them a a larger enclosure, more climbing chances, I think makes them act a little bit more naturalistic. Uh, And like I was saying the other day, the, the behavior I see when I pull open a drawer is not anywhere close to natural no snake charges at a human mouth open trying to eat whatever's near it when, yeah. that's absolutely not natural so that's as far from natural as like i want to see something that said i keep some stuff in drawers because space is space and i only have so much i'm trying to expand get a couple outdoor storage sheds that i can put bigger enclosures in and do a better job of what i want to do with my animals but I think it comes down to personality and, and what you want to do with your animals and what you want to see out of your animals. And I love going in and seeing my animals acting at least somewhat naturalistic. Granted, them staring at me and following my movements is not natural either, but at least it's it's not them charging me with an open mouth. So, Which our ATB, I feel like, even though he's not in a tub anymore, still does. That's a different animal. That's an animal that will always just be ready to go from my experience. I don't know about yours, but... But yeah, I, I think the tub thing stays with them for a long time too, though. True, we did have it in the yeah, because we always, and it seems like most breeders or keepers of things like Amazon, you always start in a tub and then you move up if you want to. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm no different, man. I, I start my babies in tubs because it it is, it's more clinical, it's easier to deal with them, it's I can keep better track of them. Absolutely, my Spilotes sulfurus do not do well in tubs as far as feeding goes. I tend to house them by sex and breeding pairing in 12, 12, 18 uh, exoterras or Zoomed enclosures with branches. And then I can go and just tap up food and they spin around and eat it. But in a, in a drawer, they freak out and they try to flee. Because mm-hmm. I've now opened up a closed space 
to do something with them as opposed to, the, opposed to them being in an open space and me touching their tail. You know, they've always in this open space in the glass terrariums versus being in a closed space in a drawer. To them, it's very different and, and they don't like it. So I, I have I have some that will take food left on a, a deli cup lid or a paper towel or something in their enclosure, but they just they're not happy with that setup. So they tend to want to or not want to they, they to be able to get them to feed properly. I kind of put them into uh, the terrarium style enclosures. And now, do you think? I mean, is there something to the fact that I mean they're catching birds out of trees and stuff mm. like that? So like your snakes get to exhibit their arboreal behavior to a certain degree. And then are you also have to feed them fowl of sorts? I, I feed everything birds. I think it's really, um, I think it's very ignorant of us to not feed at least birds. Like I'm on the, I'm on the fence of wanting to add variety to my animals, but also realizing that I don't want to chance cold blooded prey options with my animals because cold blooded prey mean cold blooded parasites, which can transfer directly. Warm-blooded prey versus to cold-blooded animals, you're not going to see that direct parasite transfer as frequently. And freezing takes care of a lot of those parasites. But your your basically your your possible parasite pool or, or danger pool is exponentially larger with cold-blooded prey. But when it comes to warm-blooded prey, I think if I the more options I have, I'll take them. But price-wise, it's just not feasible to get many things outside of what we normally see in the pet trade. But but birds are an absolute for all my animals. The only time I've ever had a problem with, I had one Loma, I fed it quail, and it was like, those are fucking delicious. I want more quail. I'm not eating any more rats. And it went off, it would not take a rat for over a year. But this past breeding season, it finally started taking rats when it wanted to get more weight on. And I've stayed off of birds with that animal. But now, actually, I, I take it back. I throw in, in the last couple of feedings, and it still ate the rodents. But I throw in a couple of chicks anyway. But I most of my feeds, I'll do a... Uh, Small to medium rat and a couple chicks for whatever I'm feeding. And but you don't have a problem good. finding enough chicks for your whole collection? No, 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 no. Uh, a bunch of different vendors are selling chicks pretty easily at this point. Um, I know Rodent Pro gets them in 25 count bags. Uh, and down here, I got rodents on the road that does either 25 or 50 count. I think they, the 25 count looks like the Rodent Pro 25 count. That they're just buying them from them, but they also get a 50 count bag elsewhere. I would love to find, because uh, all it is is the, all the males get culled off anyway when they're for the a lot of the different uh, breeding facilities for the chickens. They cull all the males because they only want the the hens for the eggs. So they're they they're garbage to them for the most part. So they sell them dirt cheap. Um, the only problem is because of myself and others who have been going out of our way to get poultry, the prices have jumped. Yeah, it used to be you can get chicken chicks for I think the our buying price was seventeen cents, and you could get quail day old quail for a you know a dime, and now it's they're forty fifty cents on the chicks, and the day old quail are like at eighty five cents. Wow, but that's still cheap though. It's really still cheap. Yeah, well the the chicken or the the day old chicks are the same size as uh, mice, or a little bit bigger than some of the mice you get depending on the time of the year. And it's just a different, a different uh, nutritional source. Different nutrients are there. In, in the wild, our our animals are eating, uh, like gray banded king snakes, for instance. People couldn't figure out why one guy was doing tremendous with them. Turns out, all he was doing was feeding lizards. He didn't feed any mammals at all. Uh, I think his name was uh, Rick Flair, not the wrestler, but another guy <laughs> named. I think it was. 
was buying all the lizards he could get from a guy who was collecting lizards by the hundreds in West Texas. That's all these animals ever got. And they just behave differently. But those lizards are eating crickets that are eating plants that are develop, you know, processing the sun and the, all those nutrients are there. There's all these crazy trace nutrients. The least we can do is offer what little we have available that's safe prey items. So everything gets checks in my collection um, at least once a month, if not weekly, depending on what the animals are. Um, I try to get, like my blackheads get quail because they're bigger or a couple day old or week old chicks. But yeah, everything gets it. And I don't see with my, my puffing snakes that are predominantly bird eaters in the wild, I don't have any real difference in their, their poops being any smellier. The, the uh, pythons a little bit, it's a little bit looser, a little bit smellier. But I think it's also because of the, the um, infrequency with which I feed them. If I fed them only chicks, they'd probably go back to being a, a drier poop as they got used to it. So. And have you always done that um, with the chicks or did something, some event happen to make you try that? I've done it for as long as they've been readily available. Um, a, a lot of it goes back. Um, I got a friend in, in Chicago, Gavin Brink, who's just one of these guys who likes to throw things at you just to make you think about things. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he, I, I also use a night drop on my incubator which people don't get. They're like, how the hell can you use a night drop in your incubator? That's not natural. I'm like, well, what, what, what exactly is natural about your incubator staying the exact same temperature the entire time? So you're definitely going to have to do some explaining there because people have a lot of trouble with, say, blackhead eggs. So, I mean, yeah, what are well, you doing? And are you doing it for all your animals, all the eggs? Whatever it gets, well, all my colubrids get thrown on a shelf. So... They definitely have temperature variants. Um, the idea that that pythons are somehow special that they have a, have to have exactly one temperature the entire incubation period is ludicrous. Doesn't make any sense at all. Um, I don't know if my video is dropping out. I just got a notification that I've used up all of my internet for my c- provider here, so I don't know if it's dropping out on your end or oh, not. Shit, you don't oh, have no. Wi-Fi there. No, I don't think there's Wi-Fi at this place. I don't know. Oh, it's party thing. house slipping. The party house, yeah. I don't know if there is. They didn't give us the uh, sign on. I didn't see any Wi-Fi, so I don't. I'm sorry if it's if it's dropping out. Oh shit! Um, I mean, but, good thing we pay you to be here so you can cover that bill. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, so yeah. Anyways, Gavin, like he threw at me, you know, um, you know, about the night drop, but also about the chicks, and that was just one of those things. I think I was feeding chicks already anyway. But he just kind of like threw some different ideas at me. I'm like, yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And I, I, since then, I think I've always been feeding them. So at least going on 15 years now. Um, but the, the night drop, I just give it a, a 1.7 degree night drop temperature because I didn't think that could do any real damage. And at the time, I was incubating something that didn't really, it wasn't blackheads. It was uh, carpet pythons or something. I don't even know what I was incubating at the time. Um, and I tried it. But what I noticed is, when the heat kicks back on in the morning, I, I incubate very dry, but in the morning, my heat kicks back on, there's a lot of moisture in the enclosure of the egg box because it's it's just kicking that moisture around. Temperatures are changing and the, the cool the heat, it pops it back up. And I think that's why I'm able to incubate very dry, but have high humidity within the boxes because I am just fluctuating the temperature just enough to cause it to, to allow it to to kick the humidity up in the box. I mean, but do you think that, I mean, the eggs seem to go bad during incubation, whether it's blackheads or womas. Do you think that's too much humidity or too little humidity? 
No, the um, my theory on the on the wet egg thing is that they're dying from the inside out, and that you're seeing that moisture spread from the inside out. Uh, the first couple times I, the first I don't know six years I had them die on me. That's I always thought I got the eggs too wet because that's what everybody tells you. But then I would cut the the eggs. And in cutting the eggs, I saw that the exact spot where the moisture began to spread from was where the embryo was. Hmm. And it just spread out across the top of the egg where there was like an air pocket. So what makes more sense that every single egg happens to get a droplet of water on the top of it, right where the embryo is, and that spreads out to the rest of the egg, or that even though you can drop water on other eggs and they don't have that happen, or that the eggs actually die from the inside out. Hmm. So I just, I, it, it's one of those things where we're, we're presented with a theory. No one questions it because it sounds acceptable. And the people who are telling it, telling us that are knowledgeable people who must know what they're talking about. But then I look at it and it doesn't, it doesn't actually hold up to scrutiny. So uh, yes, I think egg, the eggs need to have the very exact humidity and temperature parameters, but I do not think they're anywhere near as sensitive anybody makes them out to be. And can you explain kind of the whole drop, you know, what temperature you have during the day and then what the actual drop is exactly? Uh, yeah, I do 87.7 on my Herbstat. My incubator is a pine box that someone else constructed over 40 years ago to incubate eggs that was a member of the Chicago Herb Society. And it's got heat tape in it that's older than I am yeah, or heat rope that's probably going to light my house on fire someday down the road. But it's, I mean, nothing I have is high tech. There's nothing like, except for the Herbstat, nothing is new. Um, I put them in the Rubbermaid uh, boxes that have the, the clip down lids. You have a, the, the latch on either side of them, and that, I don't put any air holes in them. Uh, I suspend them. The, there's something about blackheads and aspidites in general here, blackheads and womas. But I suspend the eggs, the um, eggs on the, the light diffuser material above the perlite and I do two cups of perlite to a quarter cup of water in that mix. Incubated 87.7 at the 1.7 degree night drop. They go from almost 88 degrees down to 86, back to 87, but they don't drop to 86. They slowly decline at night until the box doesn't hold that temperature any longer and then they peak up in the morning because the, the on click jumps it right back up to 87.7. Click. So it's not, yeah. So that causes that that moisture to kind of circulate within the box. I don't know that it's the right way to do it, but it's the way I do it. And it seems it to be working. So Yeah. Yeah, I had 100% uh, incubation on two clutches of blackheads this year. And the, the third one, I lost a couple eggs, but they were screwed up eggs. I don't think there was incubation issues. I think it was just they were bad eggs. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, talking about babies getting out and kind of how or out of the egg and kind of how you mix up them getting feeding or, you know, different prey items. I mean, are they difficult to get started feeding as far as the, the blackheads go? Yeah. Blackheads are a nightmare for sure. Um, but it, it is what they are. Uh, I've put them into larger tubs. I used to put them in six quart drawers because those were baby drawers. It says it right on the website. When you order the rack, it says baby rack. So I put the babies in the baby rack and then I realized these babies were 10 times the size of the other babies I was putting in there, which were the corn snakes. So that didn't make any sense suddenly. 
once I saw someone else doing something different. So now I use the um, V28 short and our V, uh, I think it's V28 short. Yeah, V28 short racks uh, from Sea Serpents. Um, and those just seem to give them more space to move around. Uh, I will try to do some bigger drawers eventually if I can, if I can just have the space to attempt it to see if it's any better but it definitely seems like the up the, the larger tub size was very beneficial to getting them feeding quicker and then the um i use day old chicks to get them going day old quail chicks i used to beak to pry their mouth open shove it down their throat this is just with blackheads one was eat no problem so you pretty one much was, you pretty much have to assist feed them to get them at least going yeah oh shit. yeah for, how <laughs> dreadful no. is that <laughs> Well, that's what's keeping me from breeding more animals this year. And you were fairly successful. I mean, how many blackheads did you end up hatching? 32. Fuck. Wow. Hmm? Oh, medium rare. Party house. Thank <laughs> Um I'm hiding upstairs while they're getting ready to cook some steaks for me. Nice. Uh, yeah, the... um. <laughs> I've got almost all of them feeding at this point. The ones that didn't want to feed were, of course, one that was sold basically the day it came out of the egg. Uh, one of my friends said they absolutely wanted that animal, and that's been on hold ever since, and I haven't gotten it to feed on its own. And one I decided I was keeping absolutely as soon as it came out of the egg, just ate for its first time last feeding, uh, not this week, but last weekend. Um, everything else, I, you know, things that, that no one wanted, not no one wanted, but no, there's nobody with down payments on or anything. They fed right, no problem. Of course. That's how it goes. Yeah. So, but it's with the bigger drawers. I, I mean, their previous years, I wouldn't get everything feeding until March or April from a June or July hatch. Um, this year, I got everything feeding already. I had things feeding basically within the first four weeks. They were all going. So, I think I've got it nailed down. And I know with um, corn snakes, we have like all of our little tricks and, you know, things that we run through to get them to eat. Like, is there a certain steps you go through before you get to the force feeding? You know, ours is like rubbing, boiling, all that kind of random stuff. I, I you know, I never tried the boiling. I tried a ton of stuff um, when I first, the first few years I tried to get them going. And like I said, I battled up until March of the following year. Uh, but I tried uh, <laughs> everything you can think of that's readily available for lizards out of Australia. I rubbed on a, a pinky at one point or another. Um, I've wrapped them in the skin of Ackies and blue tongue skinks. I've thrown ba baby berry dragons in the enclosure with them just to see that were deformed coming out of the egg because they're supposed to eat ba baby bearded dragons. Um, carpet pythons I've, I've thrown corn snakes in with them or the sheds of corn snakes wrapped around pinkies none of that worked so i've tried a ton of stuff my, my routine now is i give them uh, a, a rat pink a mouse fuzzy a mouse hopper and a quail chick in their enclosure feed everything else come back try to get to see who ate if no one's eaten i assist feed the quail chick just because it's the easiest thing to assist feed and the quail chicks are just awesome because they're if you can get their head into their throat you can close their mouth around their neck and it's not like they don't know something's in their mouth but their mouth is closed so they kind of just kind of do it like a well how did that happen like they don't they don't really seem to get it 
like they know something's there, but it's in their throat and they're like, I might as well swallow it, but there's it's attached to something. So they swallow it anyway. And that's great. Once they do that, then I try to tease feed them on top of that with off of tongs with some fuzzy mice. And sometimes they take it, sometimes they don't. And I move on to the next week. So every single week they get at least a quail chick. If I can't get to take a quail chick, then I will force feed a uh, fuzzy mouse. So they, they get either a quail chick or a fuzzy mouse every single week until they feed on their own. Now, I know some people are kind of tentative around like the beaks and claws of a chick or chicken. I mean, do you, or quails, do you have any problem with those? Um, I have cut the, the feet off of chicks in the past when I have the time and I think about it. There's other times I don't do it. But if your temperatures are a little bit lower, they won't digest the, the feet. If you're, so if you like, like I have, uh, my garage is set up where I have air conditioned cooling my garage so they don't get as hot. But, um, if it's a cooler week or a cooler month, cooler time of the year, they'll, they'll pass the, the, the claws and the feet without digesting them. But the rest of the year, they seem to digest them. No problem. So just, I, if I think about it, I cut them off, but not, it's not every time. Yeah. So now, I mean, for us, we, since we have cord snakes, we have just animals that don't thrive for whatever, which reason, I mean, have you fed, you know, blackheads, other snakes, and is that part of like supplementing their diet or anything like that? It's much easier for us to feed off a corn snake that costs $25 than a well, yeah, blackhead. But, I mean, <laughs> no matter what, there's going to be animals that don't thrive. Well, not blackheads in particular, but even if your other colubrids don't thrive and Bring them, just put them to a blackhead, you know, feed them to a blackhead or whatnot. Generally, I don't, uh, I, I just don't do that just because they don't take them. If they're feeding, then they're feeding and they're taking, you know, adult mice. So then a, a newborn baby colubrid is just not really a noticeable meal for them. It, so it just, I, 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 don't, I don't do it, not, I don't have any moral objections or anything like that to it. It's just, I don't see the benefit of it. And then if there's something weird where it's a corn snake that somehow ate a thing of mulch and it's got an impaction I'm not aware of or something, then am I going to impact my Python by feeding the impaction over? Or, you know, there's, there's little what ifs and I just don't see the point in it personally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I've tried to, I've tried to give snakes to the olive. He doesn't eat it. But my king snake seems like yeah, our king, <laughs> our king snake just is our. So I haven't disposal. had luck with my uh, Australian pythons eating anything—the fuscus oh. or the olive. But I did uh, um, eastern kings years ago, and I, I had an eastern king up almost five feet long at a year old, but it it ate a ton. I had some bad incubation where things didn't go right, and it was getting baby corn snakes and rat snakes every other day. They do wonderful, but. Mm -hmm. Again, once they're up over a couple feet long, then I, it, the meal seems kind of pointless. But those that <laughs> all the yolk that the baby corn snake sucks up and then has deformities, that's a lot of yolk going right to that king snake, and they grow great off of that. Um, I was I, I, I tend to still be pretty brutal with my culling. I don't like to let things out that have issues. Um, one thing people don't do is the, to throw their baby snakes into water and see if they can swim. Hmm. That's a great test of neurological ability. If they can't swim, it's because they can't get the motor functions together to swim. And they'll start spinning and flipping like I'd be a terrible ball python breeder because <laughs> spinners, <laughs> see you later. Like 
No, I've never but, um, heard that before. That's interesting. Yeah, if you think about it, just there's a lot that needs to happen for a snake to swim. It's got to be able to, to regulate its air and float and and undulate its body all the way through properly. And you don't notice that they that they're screwed up. Just in, in a their, bin, right? But you throw them in the water, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, that one's not right. But ones that are healthy just zoop, and they'll jump right out of the, the water on you. So it's a it's a great way to figure out if you've got any problems you're not noticing. Um, I, I did um, Everglades rat snakes, which were kind of overly inbred, and those just had tons of kink issues. So I was having like 14 eggs and getting four healthy babies out of them. So I just stopped breeding them and got out of them. But at that point, I was very brutal about what I let out because I just didn't want to have somebody get an animal from me that had any deformities and come back and be like, well, what the hell, dude? This thing's kinked up. Unless I was, you know, giving it to, to a friend as a gift or something, I wouldn't. I wouldn't sell things that are a mess if I know they're a mess. That's always such a weird quandary, especially with there's a lot of subpar morphs out there. It's like, do you sell this as a pet grade, pet only animal, or do you call it? I mean, like, what's the correct thing to do as far as like, you know, I'm always on the fence about it. Well, just people are jerks and you're friends today, but you're not friends tomorrow. And all of a sudden, yeah, I got this animal from him and, you know, it's got kinks and, you know, he's just a, you know, he's got inbred animals. And, you know, it, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't seem like a, a good business plan long-term. You know, I try to keep, you know, I've been doing this for over 20 years and there's one guy who ripped me off years ago who will probably say something bad about me, but I don't think I, anybody else has anything bad to say about me, or at least about my animals. Some people might not like me, but my animals are good at least. So, yeah, I know so, people. Yeah, I mean, eventually something's going to happen, especially with live animals, man. Especially if you're, you know, back in the day, you were doing colubrids and I do colubrids. And you know that, I mean, these are little kind of, I don't want to say they're fragile because they're super hardy. But, I mean, shit happens for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, no, like absolutely. you got to make everything right at some point and hopefully you're cover your ass always you know always on the end of covering your ass with stuff like that yeah and like you said if you're doing a a 25 dollars corn snake it's a lot easier to say okay well hey here's your animal if you're doing a thousand dollar or two thousand dollar animal it's a little trickier but at the same time that person spent that two grand with you whether they spent 25 or two you're just replacing an animal that has no no actual value except for the value we assign to it. So what's better that to keep your, your name going or to take care of your customers who are willing to spend that money with you. And I, I've, you know, I've got guys who I've, I've taken care of them and I've never heard from them again, good or bad. And I have other guys who I've taken care of and they've come back to me and they bought a dozen more animals. So either I hear nothing, that's wonderful. Or they, they spend more money with me. Yeah, you know, that's. I'd rather be that than someone talking bad about me behind my back. Right. What were you gonna say? Oh, nothing. <laughs> so, I mean, how many people are breeding? I mean, these like neotropical bird snakes. That's not something that I see a lot of people working with. I mean, are people successful with them? And are they difficult? I mean, to have success with and everything about them success. is basically <laughs> what you're asking. Um, I, I went four years without success 
in breeding them between my first and in this time, but that's because I didn't have the healthy babies. I mean, the healthy adults. Um, I had, I had a healthy adult that was up to size and then she got egg bound by one freaking egg. I never saw, never noticed. I would have been not thrilled. But I would have been happy to take her to the vet to get it taken care of. And I just never saw it. Um, and then when I did see it, I just put some pressure on it to feel what was there. And it, this had, you know, probably been a month or more by the time I even noticed it because she had regurged a meal and this girl never missed a meal. And I went, ah, crap. So I gave her like, actually, I'm thinking about it, it probably two months at this point. I gave her two weeks off, offered her another meal. She regurged that. And that's when I got started to get investigative and, and look at her and feel her and get real touchy. And I felt the egg pop underneath mm. my thumb. And then she was dead within 24 hours. But at that point, she was probably almost dead already. And a vet wouldn't have helped her. Um, but then I got animals up to size this year. So I think it's just like, again, a matter of getting to sound stupidly simplistic. It's not that I'm an amazing snake breeder. It's I have healthy adults. I have captive born adults that have been raised up to adulthood that are healthy. It's, it's kind of the same as every other snake out there, really. There's only a handful of snakes that they're that are really difficult. And that's not that they're difficult. So we haven't figured out that one thing they need or two things they need to trigger them. So have so, you brought in any wild caught individuals or just imported in general individuals? Uh, all the, the, so neotropical bird snakes, if I were an expert, notice those come out of Costa Rica and I purchased personally probably close to 30 of them, uh, that were imported over the years. And, um, my friends have probably another 20 between them that they purchased, uh, that, that, that was the only source for them. Now I'm breeding them. Um, my friend Gavin Brinks breeding them. Another gentleman, I think, is in somewhere in the Southwest, I believe. I saw he just had a clutch. And he had a clutch a couple of years ago and then nothing last year. So I don't know if he's wholesaling off or what he's doing with his animals or if he's just not being successful. But I, as all these animals reach adulthood, I think we're going to see a lot more people be successful. A guy in... Um, uh Jonathan Loman in in West Palm Beach. He had he had success this year with his babies. So or his, his adults. He got babies out of his. So uh, as people get to adult uh, animals to adulthood, they're they're gonna have success. They're not that difficult. They and they take chicken eggs. And my females this year ate a crap ton of chicken eggs and then spit out a bunch of healthy eggs. So that's my plan for next year as well. Find so get farm fresh chicken eggs, they're gonna be getting them. Well that's easy. Yeah, and the the guys in Costa Rica, that's all they feed them. So, yeah, yeah some of them that's they they they're strictly feed chickens. Um, uh, can't think of this guy's name. I'm gonna think of it afterwards and be pissed off. But um, there's a really prominent um, herpetologist out of Kansas. <sighs> I got his name on my tongue. Anyways, I was talking to him about him because he had done some work in Central and South America. Harry Green. Harry Green, I, I was talking with Harry Green or messaging him on Facebook about the Pacillanotis, and I mentioned that I had my own on rodents. And he was like, really? That's different. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah. All the naturalistic notes say they eat birds and eggs, and that's it. Wow. So on a, on a naturalistic perspective and what's in the literature, they don't take rodents. So for him, that was a novel food item. And he's like, you know, I was too lazy to write it up, but... Apparently nobody's written it up yet that they even take the the rodents. Well, welcome to the U.S. herp hobby. Everything gets a rodent, no matter what the <laughs> fuck you eat, you all get a yeah. rodent. 
Pretty so, much. <laughs> so, um, I mean, do these things come in with parasite loads, or I mean, what's kind of your process when you have imported them? So the the Costa Rica only allows the exportation of captive born babies. So you can only get captive born babies out of So that's um, not like the Indonesia in parentheses, captive born green tree python um, or whatever, like if they're truly captive born. I did get in a group of eight animals from one individual. Uh, I don't really blame him in, uh, except for the, his improper handling of the animals because he just took the import and took them out of one box, put them in a different box and shipped them to me, never watered them. And they, the animals got held over in Costa Rica for over a week. Wow. So they came into me dehydrated and I lost, um, I got eight or 10 animals and I lost all but one of them. Uh, Gavin had the one that uh, survived. So uh, I think that was, it was a different source for the animals. I think they were probably given dirty water before they left was my guess because they hadn't eaten. I don't know what else could have been a problem, what sort of pathogen, but they dropped so quickly on me that I was, I never got them into a vet and they were so small. I didn't think the vet would have much they could even determine from them. So I, I didn't bother with the vet trip. I mean, is hydration a, a big deal or you think it was just the stress, you know, that was put on during shipping? Babies stressed out and, and dehydrated. I think it's just a terrible combination. Right. But they basically end up without water for probably close to 10 days by the time they got to me. And that's just crappy. And all the guy had to do was unbox them and take them out of the... I don't know if you ever got any imported animals, but they frequently come in, especially baby snakes, in what we package strawberries in or blueberries in here, those plastic clam containers, and they just staple around them to hold them shut. And that's how the animals came to me. So he like literally never open the containers so he, they never got water you know they came in on a thursday stayed with him or got to him on monday or whatever or tuesday and then i got them the following thursday and they were stuck in in costa rica for six days so it's just uh being a shoddy flipper um with with the adult sulfurus and tiger rats coming out of guyana and Suriname, there's certainly parasite laden they get they're very thin animals to begin with they get heavy parasite loads a lot of guys shotgun treatment if they've got lungworm from eating amphibians then their lungs are going to be filled with organic material that's been you know recently killed by the 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 toxins that they're forced into them for medication and plus dehydration on top of it and shoots shuts down their kidneys not a good deal so captive born is what i highly suggest for all of these animals if you can find them yeah. Now, I mean, what is your process if you were to get in an animal, you know, imported like that or wild caught? Uh, hydration first, first and foremost, just hydrate them for a couple of weeks. Um, they're very slow. It's not just drinking. It's overall hydration and getting the their skin back to hydrated because that you can let, watch them drink and then go into them two or three days later and pinch their skin and they're still dehydrated. Like their skin doesn't recover like it's supposed to. And they can be soaking in water and they still have that. They just need to like kind of absorb the moisture and, and get it all through them. Um, after that, then you can bring them in and get them treated. But if you, you get them treated too soon, they're, they're the lower hydration level, it, it plays havoc on their kidneys and liver, especially when the medication hits them that much harder. So um, I, I try, I would hydrate for two weeks to a month before getting them treated. 
if the parasite's that bad, they're going to die either way. So it, <laughs> whether you get them treated day one or day 30, it's not going to change their survival ship if they're that bad. But it might give you a chance if they're not that bad to, to get the animal healthy. But actually bring it to a vet. Crazy idea. I know people want to be cheap and skip steps and not bother to raise babies and buy adults that are wild caught, that are full of parasites, and then they they have a book that was written 30 years ago that has med charts in it, and they want to treat their animals. Those med charts have all changed. I'm friends with one of the top herp vets in the country, and he says, yeah, no, we're, we're doing a tenth of what we were doing for meds on some medications 10 years ago. We're finding out the toxicity level is much lower, and we're seeing are much higher than what we thought it was, and we're, and we're seeing long-term damage we didn't realize that that's what it was and we're everything's coming they're, they're getting much more safe with their muds nowadays get a, find a good herp vet who's up on modern herpetology med- medicine and then bring them into that person is what my suggestion would be but but some guy on instagram with a lot of followers is basically a vet so yeah People ask me all the time, like, dude, I am in no way qualified to treat your animal. You know that, right? Like, there's people whose job this is who went to, like, eight years more of school than I did. Like, Yeah, they they could be a doctor or a vet. They chose to work with animals, but they've got that medical training. They can – you fall down in a a restaurant, they can save you. They know how. (laughs) Then they know animals, too. I mean, bring it to those guys. Um, I get it. Some of the treatments are really simplistic, but – you're also, you have to know what you're treating. So that's the, the other catch to all this is they're like, well, I, it's, if it's worms, it's going to be this. And if it's this, it's going to be that. And I can do flagellant, I can do panic here. Great. But what if it's all the things that neither of those are any good for? Or they're something that actually needs a higher dose or a lower dose. So it, what are you doing if you don't know what you're treating? Like you can get antibiotics in, in Mexico and you can take that for your toothache, but that might not be what it is. And you might need to do something different and you might not take the right amount or length of time with those antibiotics, which people don't do in this country as mm-hmm. it is anyway. Never mind treating their animals properly with meds that can be toxic to the animals. That that just makes me crazy. And I and I get it, I'm spoiled. I had not one good vet, not two good vets. I had like a dozen great vets in Chicago that were all herp vets. If you're in Chicago and you can't find a good herp vet, it's because you're not looking. They're everywhere i've never heard of that many good ones in one place yeah because we've had i've had we were indoors and couldn't find good ones yeah and when you were trying to bring in like a candoya pulsini to someone and they're like what the fuck is this thing and then you can see the look on their face and you're like okay i'm fucked here um there's a great uh resource you can use it's uh arav.org a-r-a-v.org and it gives you the option to search a zip code and you can pull up your zip code and see what, what vets are members of the ARAB organization there. That's good to know. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and that, that doesn't mean you, you get a good vet. That means you get a vet who's at least taken the time to pay to be a member of ARAB and has the opportunity to use their resources. So you might not get a great vet, but you at least are in the right direction of getting a vet who's doing the right steps to be suitable to care for your animals, which is better than just looking through all the dog and, and cat vets and just calling, will you see snakes? 
okay, I'm slow. Why not? You know, they all get trained on it, but they just don't, whether they're doing it and they're active and they're up to date is a whole nother question. And they also always assume that you have a corn snake or a ball python. Yeah. No, um, when no one knew what my, my, um, fire next notice or Susie's facility notice at the time was, I had one that had a weird, um, spinal deformity and rib flares and like all this weird, crazy stuff going on with it. Um, it was a poor feeder. The the spinal deformity and the rib flares were right around the heart. So my personal belief was that the um, it, the lack of food going in while it was still doing some growth, um, it, it pulled some calcium from its bones, you know, through its bloodstream. It pulled the calcium from its bones, which they will do. That's that is um, what do you call it? That all the lizards get. Um, MBD. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, shot in the dark. I wasn't very, uh, I wasn't very confident with that answer, but well, I mean, that's what that's what these animals are doing. They're pulling the calcium from their bones, and their bones get all rubbery. Yeah. Well, I had a snake that basically had that happen, and I sent it to a friend of mine who was a member of ARAV. Sent it in to they have like a chat group that they can send this stuff out to. So here's a weird species that no one in the herd probably knows exists, and some vet in Arizona is like, "Yes, I know what that snake is. Yes, I know what that condition is. Yes, I've seen it before. Here's some ideas." So just for that alone, that I think it's worth it. Is it the if they're if they're active members, they can use that to uh, put into the the group chat they use to to see who else has seen that sort of condition before. That's awesome. Yeah. So are are things like fecals imperative to this? I mean, what else can you do to test an animal like that? Um. I don't, <laughs> all that said, I don't run fecals. Uh, that I, if I have problems, I'll run fecals. I did bring a bunch of animals in a couple of years ago and I ran fecals and everything. And ironically, the wild caught stuff I brought in were completely clean. The Catholic born stuff I brought in had hookworm. Hmm. So go figure. <laughs> but yeah, I, I didn't, I did a whole collectional collection fecal. I had a, I found an ARAB vet down here in Florida that, was a mobile vet and he just came to my house and just did fecals for, or he collected fecals for a couple hours and then went home and charged me almost nothing. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's one thing I will say for Florida is the vets down here are dirt cheap compared to Chicago. Like I had the best vets, but they knew it. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, does your keeping change a lot going from like a superhuman environment to where, I mean here, cause we moved from Texas, which is pretty humid. And now we're in Philly where in the winter it gets... Oh my God, it's the driest place I've ever lived and I'm dying. <laughs> so I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. Chicago when you're running heat in your house <laughs> is very different than, you know, Florida. Yeah, well, it depends if you get the force-blown air or radiator panels or whatever you got going on. But yeah, um, I switched my my substrate for sure. I went, I couldn't, my, I used, used in Cypress and it started getting moldy when I got down here to Florida right away. So I switched to Aspen, which is obviously way drier. I couldn't, I, uh, mm -hmm. I guess if you're using drawers, you have less to deal with and it, you can keep your humidity a little bit higher just with a water bowl and heat, heat tape. But, um, yeah, I, I definitely had to make some husbandry changes, but like I said, uh, in, in the other broadcast, that's also why I, I find it crazy when people try to tell you what you need to do with your animals in your house, because of what they do in their house, it's like, they're two different houses. They're two different, completely different little microclimates. How can you tell me that 
your husbandry is the right thing for my animals in my house or that what I'm doing is absolutely wrong because you're doing something different. That's just stupid. But people are arrogant and they do that. Yeah, I think people think sometimes that we're baking cakes instead of breeding snakes. So, wow! But you did can't you plan bake to rhyme cakes. That? No, I did not plan to rhyme that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. you can't even bake, bake cakes the same way. You got to use do different. I don't know what it was. There's something someone else mentioned that, and they um, like in Colorado, you got to do something different, different temperature or more flour or something, or the cakes oh, won't rhyme because of the, the altitude same. or something. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, but okay. yeah, I mean, it's actually a great example of uh, backwards there, but yeah, it, it, yeah, you can't have somebody in, in Arizona. I had somebody talk to me about uh, blackhead eggs and I'm like, here's, you know, I went through everything I do with them and my incubation set up and my actual incubator and different incubator types I've used and everything else. And he comes back and tells me that he's using an airstone in a, in a bucket of water in the bottom of his incubator just to run humidity up inside his, his incubator. And I'm like, that's insane. That there's how could that possibly work? But then he's got zero humidity. I mean, his house has like zero to ten percent humidity. He opens the, the his incubator and everything dries out. I'm like, okay, I, I I guess, but I I I can't help you with that point. I have no concept of what to do at that point. That's insane. I have to ask, what's an airstone? The um like uh for when you have bait fish. You get that little blue stone or aquarium where you get the blue stone, the pump that just constantly uh, aerates the water and like makes the bubble. Just thinking. Yeah, I, I saw Finding Nemo. I know what y'all are talking about. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you, all of your education comes from Finding Nemo. So that's good. When it comes to fish, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, just forced uh, evaporation, basically. But. At the same time, when I was in Chicago, I, I did put bins of water inside my incubators as well. So I get that. There's that definitely a great idea just to, and I'd actually would take my uh, mister and spray the whole inside of my incubator box wow. just to add humidity to the box itself. And then once, then I set my, my boxes up separately, but there, I would, I would humidify my, my, my incubator. Um, someone else told me they put the plants in their incubator because the plants kick off humidity. Whoa. The simplistic, brilliant idea, but not mine. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine all the different like things people have tried in Arizona dealing with humidity. It just sounds like such a struggle. I mean, just think about, I mean, back in the day, they were putting like chondro eggs in mason jars, like sealed clothes with water on the bottom and shit like that, just to... You know, just hoping to incubate an egg, let alone, I mean, now, I mean, we have such a grasp on how to produce snakes to such a higher degree. But I mean, just 20 to 30 years ago, they were doing all types of crazy shit just right. to try to make it work. Yeah. Well, people are jumping on the, the different containers and I'm not going to crap any of those containers, but I know how I set up my eggs with, with my experience. So I can't help you with using somebody else's specialized incubation containers because I don't I don't use them. I don't know anything about them. So I can't really give you any advice on that. I can tell you what I do with my my boxes and how I set my stuff up. That's all I can tell you. Um, I'm willing to speculate for you, but it's not uh, that's not worth that much. Like people think because I hatched out a bunch of eggs that I should be able to help them hatch theirs and I'm happy to help, but I don't have any magic secrets. I just set them up and pay attention. Yeah, yeah, I think the pay attention part is the most important <laughs> part. 
Like you can- I'm in my incubator every two or three days, man. I'm I'm always in there checking it and 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 making sure the eggs aren't deflating or I'll do little micro changes and sometimes I'll, I will add a, like a full deli cup of water into a box. I only put a quarter of a deli cup in to begin with because the eggs are just being weird. Some clutches are just weird. The females don't keep as much moisture in them or something. Like, I don't know what's going on with them, but I'm trying what I can to make them survive. Right. But that's all I can tell you is pay attention and get in there and do something. Right. Um, okay, I have a totally different question, but that's the way my brain works. You're puffing snakes. What kind of clientele is interested in buying those? Just wondering. Just weirdos. Are you, are you <laughs> saying that they're like things that not a lot of people like? Is that what or, you're getting at? Or, or no, but I mean, if, I don't know. I haven't really heard of them a lot, so I didn't know if a lot of people, if I'm just the the ignorant one or like a lot of people don't know about them so is it only like really specialized you know uh, older or more experienced individuals i don't know old people for sure <laughs> no it's just a matter of people who know what they are um and that's just it just people getting educated sorry i'm looking for a bottle oh there we go bottle opener um just people who have had a chance to see them in person i mean the best thing i can do is is show somebody one of these animals in person and that seems to be sales pitch over and done with they're awesome looking they're they're amazing to deal with so they're not that hard to sell but (laughs) years ago with i was sulfurous um i won't mention the guy i don't like but um there's a couple guys i guess i can't have any beer can't do it one-handed um there's a couple you can put us down (laughs) all right let me do that real quick (laughs) Okay. <laughs> in the reptile hobby that were wandering around Tinley and one of them this bottle opener sucks um one of them walked by and looked at my animals and had someone else come over and ask me questions about it so he could do a podcast later or uh try to video them later I just broke that bottle I'm really not having beer all right, sorry. Um, yeah, but anyways, one of the guys who I'm not a fan of sent somebody else over to ask me questions about the animals so he could seem like he was educated on the animals because his image was so important. And then Mark Bell from Reptile Industries, like the biggest reptile breeder in the U.S. I mean, he's just got huge setups and everything. He walks over just absolutely enthralled, said, what the fuck is that? And just like, where's it from? Where are they like? What are they, okay, and just 20 questions. He was just, this guy breeds and keeps and has these huge buildings and huge He's business. Literally a millionaire, but has zero ego on to ask you what the animal is, even though he's been doing it for decades. Yeah, and he go, then once I talked to him about it, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember those coming in. They haven't come in the country for years. I'm like, no, yeah, they haven't. He goes, yeah, those, I didn't think those things were that, that that laid back man they were always kind of like like those are wild caught animals he's like oh yeah that make, and it was just a whole conversation about these aren't the crappy animals that were coming in half dead for cobra food in the in the 80s and 90s these are captive born healthy animals that are really vibrant and inquisitive and calm and good natured and he was just thrilled with them and that, that's that's what i look for in people in general is just somebody who's really interested in the animals and at that point, the sale's sold. You know, the sale's done. They're going to buy the animals because they want the animals. That's just it. 
Um, but it's they, they want the animals because they're they're enthralled. It's something new. That's I think we all got into this hobby because we wanted something different and and interesting and something caught our attention at some point. Whether it was a bearded dragon or a boa constrictor or or a corn snake, something caught our interest and we loved it. And we're still all those same people. Just we get bored with all the stuff that's around and available. So I got stuff that other people don't have. Yeah, let well, me use a Pixar reference for you. It's like Squirrel. You know, you see the next thing and you're like, I want that immediately. Bl- From or, Ice oh. Age? No, Ice Age? I don't know. There's you would know better than me. Never mind. Okay, keep on. Wow, failure. Sorry. Pixar fail. I clearly oh, should have dropped off on my Finding Nemo reference. Yeah. We should have ended it at that. <laughs> but talking about getting first interested, I don't think we asked him, like, how did he get into snakes in general? You know, I meant to say that. That's yeah, you... That's usually our first question, and you skip to present. But backtracking, <laughs> like what first <laughs> caught your interest with snakes? Um, when I was a kid, I was interested in them. I was—I mean, I grew up down here in Florida, so I had opportunity all the time. Um, uh, my uh, stepbrother, who had a corn snake for a while, it was a wild, mean little thing. And then I got out of it because I moved to New England, and there's just nothing up there. And then I went to a few pet stores and got interested in it again. And then when I moved back to Florida, it was like right when the croc hunter was really jumping in popularity. Uh, I came across a corn snake in the middle of my boss's driveway that was as good looking or better looking than like a classic Okatee out in the middle of nowhere, Florida, where they're not supposed to be that good looking. And I kept it and brought it home and, and cat it for a while. And that was it. Once I got that animal, I was just kind of hooked and, Got heavy, heavy into it. Yay, so. corn snakes. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I love corn snakes. I just read them for what got me out of corn snakes wasn't corn snakes, it was the people. <laughs> no, I just, I don't have time for people to want to tell me that that guy's animal is $5 less. Don't, well, we I don't want to hear you. haven't experienced as much of that. Well, it's because you have the modern outlets to all these things. You have the Instagrams, you have the YouTubes. So I feel like a lot more people are invested in a particular animal because we are able to put it out there. When it's at a show and you're just that guy versus that other guy, then they don't really give a shit who they're buying it from. They just care about the price. Yeah. I, I went through a ton of work and tried to get my animals out a couple months earlier than everybody else was getting their animals out made sure they all had meals. I was doing everything I could to do my due diligence to have a healthy, vibrant animal that was already thriving when other people had hatchlings. And and they still I just tried had... to undercut you. Yeah. Well, everybody undercut. I mean, the shows, everybody walks around the show, checks all the prices, and then drops their price by five bucks. We walk in the, sh- in the show selling corn snakes for 50, and by the time the doors open, everybody's at 25. It's like, it, I, don't, I hated that. I hated the, the mentality of not only will everybody in the building cut your throat, but everybody in the, that walks in the building as a customer wants you to cut your neighbor's throat for them. Like, I just, I don't have time for it. I just got, when it became more business and more of that mentality, I lost interest in the, in doing that. I, I don't, that's, I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to keep snakes. Mm-hmm. I want to breed snakes. I want to produce snakes. And I want to have snakes. I can help other people get that they can enjoy. I don't want to deal with a bunch of idiots. And now you're the only guy with, I mean, the animals that you have at these shows. So you don't yeah, have to mess which, with that. 
Yeah, but it, the flip side is I, I don't sell anything at the shows. <laughs> <laughs> People come by and they're like, that's the most amazing animal. Your table's the greatest table in the show. It's, I can't believe it. Even when I was doing even more common stuff, people would come by and I had like all the um, Amazon tree boas and wine glasses and, and people were like, oh, it's the best table in the show. I'm like, cool. So what did you get? I got a ball python. <laughs> Congrats. All right. Um, but I do the shows for advertising. I want, like I said, if people see the animals, then they, they get interested and they look up information, and they get back to me. Um, if they don't, then they, you know, the, hopefully I'll have some the following year and they'll see it again. And that, that interest will get spurred again and they, they come forward. But at the same time, I don't want people to buy something purely impulse and not know how to take care of it either. Yeah. I so. mean, most of the times you're, priced out with these types of with something like a blackhead so i mean i mean the the more expensive a snake gets it's almost the easier it is for you to sell it in a way because no one's kind of even though you would think people would ask you more questions and all this and that but you know that that person did their research that they're buying a blackhead they're not, not impulse black buying a blackhead there i've i've sold <laughs> i want to say six but I just did, uh, let's say eight, let's call it 10, which is more than I've actually ever done at, at shows. Let's, let's say I've sold 10 blackheads at shows ever, um, being super generous. Uh, one of those was to somebody completely impulse purchasing wow. the animal to the point where it was so obviously impulse purchase. I started questioning whether he had caging or everything else. So he went over and bought caging. But when he handed me his credit card to run it through, I started looking around for like the, you know, am I under, is this somehow am I doing something illegal? Cause this just feels <laughs> like fish and wildlife is going to pounce or something somewhere. It was just so surreal and weird that the kid came out like that. It wasn't, he was walking through a reptile show, but he wasn't really into reptiles. He was just kind of looking around at snakes and he was kind of wanting it. He's like, he, he told me he came in, he wanted a snake, but he doesn't really know much about snakes. And he wanted to know a bunch of questions about the blackheads. And he went and bought a book and he asked a bunch of questions and he's like, all right, well, I'm gonna get my credit card. <laughs> or he said, well, he asked me, do you take credit cards? I'm like, yeah, I take credit cards. He goes, oh, my credit card's in the van. I'm like, oh, of course it is. Where Never else would it be? gonna see him ever again, yeah. Yeah. And then like 10 minutes later, he's standing in front of me, handing me his credit card. And that's when I just got, whoa. <laughs> but outside of that, I think um, realistically that's him. I've got another, I wanna say six or seven sales it shows ever of blackheads and of those almost everybody already knew me walking in the door and, and came to purchase animal from me like i've i've never really had anybody walking through a show that actually kicked out money for a blackhead because they've always wanted one and now there's one in front of them right they come up and they tell me that but they never buy anything <laughs> that's been me i'm totally guilty of that because I've wanted a blackhead for so long, but do I have that money? No. But I told the person how much I wanted it, and now I feel kind <laughs> of like, bad well, for it. It's like everybody asks me how tall I am. It's everybody that comes to the door is just kind of doing the same thing. So it's not it's not just you. It's everybody. But it's hard <laughs> when they're so beautiful. It's <laughs> oh. And this year I produced some amazing blackheads where I'm like stunk with them every time I open the drawers. So I get what people are like, like wowed by them. But, um, it, I, I, I'm not gonna say it gets old. It just gets a little frustrating at the end of the day when I have, I've kicked out the money for the table and the show and everything else. And I'm, 
the time to be there and I haven't made any sales and people are still coming by telling me how beautiful the animal is this <laughs> but I I mean at this but all but what annoys me is when someone comes in goes through that whole spiel and then goes and drops two grand on a ball python no that's annoying still just next week or the week after or any other show but they're not going to see me again it's like did that was that really your best option like right. best use of your two grand <laughs> So when you're breeding blackheads, is there a specific thing that you are going for? I'm trying to get the um, the cleanest pattern I can get out of them. And uh, I, I have a couple more projects I'm trying to work on. Uh, I've already put my pairs together for this season, so I'm doing the same three pairs I did last year, plus a couple others that are um, hopefully going to pan out. I got one that was like a a spot back pattern. It wasn't, it was almost a stripe, but down the center of the stripe, there was the, a light circle. Cause you know, it's supposed to have the bands going across. Um, so there was like all the, the bands go, were connected down the back, but there were these little light circles down the middle of all the bands. Um, I just call it spot back cause I'm not creative and witty and try to create cute names to sell my animals under. And it was very descriptive. <laughs> well, someone uh, just named the ultimate corn snake. So I feel like you, you got to come up with something pretentious like that. Yeah. But uh, I threw that pair together and I have another pair that's um, hopefully going to pan out that are supposed to be het for albino. So I'll see what if that works out. Ooh. I had no idea that those were stateside. Uh, myself and Tom Keoghan have uh, animals that are had a pet for albino there's no albinos in the u.s though so is that i mean who's further along in, in that project who's <laughs> in that rat race <laughs> um tom's just got a bigger overall collection uh he's got much more invested in it and he's got more of the hats and possible hats because he did produce them two or three years ago he had a clutch he produced but the albino died coming out of the egg and he kept back he got they got one albino and I want to say six or seven other animals, and he kept all of those back. So he'll he'll always be the king on that, just because he's got more animals and um, definitely more. Is but, there any price point as far as you know what something like a visual albino would go for in the U.S.? They get to set the price. They're the <laughs> one sold this past year, and um, there was one produced in. Uh, Europe by um, Paul Harris at UK Pythons. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe his went for, it was in euros, but it was like, he said it was, he didn't give me an exact price, but I said 35,000. And he goes, it was more than that. I said 40,000. He goes, I did a little better than that. And I don't want to get into it. What? So somewhere over 40,000 euros for an albino. That's a car. Which, that's Which a nice will, car. And that's Euros, so it's like 50K oh my God. American. Um, okay, never but, getting that. <laughs> it just depends on 25 years, maybe. If, if a, a buyer comes out that's willing to spend that kind of money, that's you can put whatever price you want on it. There's got to be somebody willing to drop the cash. And the problem with blackheads right now, is, unlike a ball python, if someone's out of a $50,000 ball python because it's supposed to be some great thing, people will be willing to spend that money because they know they can produce ball pythons. People think blackheads are difficult. And I just, that, that bothers me because they're not difficult. They just, you have to just treat them properly. 
And I don't, I don't know what's difficult about not overfeeding the animal and allowing the animal to stay with the, you know, the pairs to stay together until you know you have fertile eggs. That's, that's all I do. I don't find them difficult at all. The incubation's a little tricky, but it's just a matter of not being bad at incubation and setting your boxes up mostly airtight with not too much humidity. But those babies and the feeding. <laughs> yeah, that's hard. That's that's why. Um, that's this. I mean, same with the the puffing snakes in general as well. That there's uh, a couple of the big name breeders who, or at least one, who decided he was going to get into the puffing snake complex by getting in sulfurous and tigers and stuff. And someone's like, "Well, are you worried it's going to kill the the market and, and swamp the market?" I'm like, "No, they're not that." They're not the the factory animals. They're not, you know, you can do a crap ton of common colubrids because you can do a crap ton of them. If you couldn't do a crap ton, we wouldn't have them. There's a ton of things that we've lost in this country because they were not stupidly easy. And that's what everybody breeds, the things that are like hognose breeders. I don't know if they're still doing it, but for a time they were getting their eggs so wet they were see-through. That's that's a stupidly easy animal. If you could damn near drown the animal and like incubate it underwater and it still hatches, that's stupidly easy. If you have to actually keep your your temperatures and your parameters proper, that's not difficult. That's just an animal that needs proper parameters. You know what I mean? It's like that's not uh, conceptually to me. That's not difficult. That's just you, that's not stupidly easy. But it so, takes I'm, the extra observation to keep an eye on the animals. To do the yeah, right. like that's not difficult though. It's just, <laughs> but you can't do that a hundred times over. Yeah, yeah, but no. With the what I'm saying with the commercial breeding is that that the um these animals they don't they don't feed as readily. They don't. There's little things about them, the, the little characters about them that you have to get them as individuals. Like corn snakes, you can just throw a hundred live pinkies in a hundred separate drawers and 60, 70 of those are going to eat without a problem. And you go back and do whatever, you know, tricks for the other 30 and your, your, your tricks are kind of taking that pinky and just doing something different with it, killing it, boiling it, whatever you're doing with it to get that, the next level, make them eat. Whereas with these, you don't have that simplicity of it. You've got to do a little bit of hands-on spends a little bit of time with them. So I don't think they're ever going to be a, a, a huge, um, I don't think anybody's going to produce a hundred of them in a year or 150 in a year easily and be able to sell them. Now, are there any morphs in all of these like neotropical bird snakes, balotes, anything like that? Are there any? Um, well, tiger rats had the albino. Uh, unfortunately, that died out. Uh, um, Michael Barrera at Snakes at Sunset imported the albino, sold it off to Ben Siegel. So there's videos of Ben Siegel having the albino. He sold it to a guy named Orlando in Wisconsin, and he had it, and it died at uh, unexpectedly, and like it, it died, but it, it didn't even like die normal. It it was laid out on the ground, like it was crawling, getting ready to get onto a branch, and just died there. Like it didn't look dead. He said he walked by it like twice, two different days, and it was in the same spot. He didn't think anything of it. And the third day, he kind of smelt something and he looked at it a little closer and he was like, well, are you dead? <laughs> yeah. 
are you going to move now? What's going on? And he like he said once he realized it was dead, then he's like, wow, yeah, it hadn't moved for the last couple of days, but it it was completely normal looking. Like it didn't, you know, normally snakes will twist up and they'll mm-hmm. go through death crawls and everything. It, that none of that happened. Um, I got a het albino out of that group from him. Well, out of that, he only <laughs> so he bred it and got a clutch of like six or seven eggs, but only one egg hatched, and it was a female. The original albino was a male, so it should have been perfect. Um, but then the male died. So all I had was a female. So I was taking on like a 10, 12 year project of breeding that female and holding back everything wow. multiple years in a row and trying to come up with something down the line. Um, but the female came to me and just never did well. Uh, she had hookworm. I tried to get rid of that. And then so, I don't know if the hookworms had just done enough damage in, to her intestines that she would regurge food for me. And she just never thrived when I, once I got her and she ended up dying after about 10 months. So, um, but then, uh, I have a strike form of the tiger rats out of Honduras. Those are spectacular. Um, I just pulled one of my males out the other day and it was so bright yellow when I brought it out into the sun. I was like, I had to call my wife outside. I'm like, Hey, come here, look at this. This thing is freaking amazing. Holy crap. Like when you see an animal every day and then you still get amazed by it. That's, that's what I like. Now, is it kind of like her and she's like, oh, whatever, I don't really see that? Or is she excited oh, for no. it? <laughs> no, she she knows enough to at least placate me and, and pretend she cares. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, what is your whole collection like as far as number-wise? I'm probably right around 100 animals. I don't try to count unless I have to, which I have to do once a year for my permit. But... Oh, so is that a, a Florida thing for almost everything? If you're selling animals in Florida, you have to have a, your permit. Oh, wow. Yeah. So is that like Would a you... fish and wildlife representative comes over or something? No, you send in the paperwork. Uh, if you want fish and wildlife to come over, you have to get your, uh, not you have to, you have to try to get your venomous permit or your croc permit or some of the other more restrictive permits or your spe- your species of concern permit. Um they'll they'll visit you with that the general class three that you get for being able to sell at any show they tend not to bother you um but strangely enough when i was at daytona the year i got here one of the fish and wildlife guys was obviously training another guy and he goes well this is jason hood and these are um at that time there was well they just changed i think i think that's what got me they not only <laughs> he said these are fire and notice and like you pronounced it you pronounce it properly. You knew this genus had changed. You know who I am. The hell's going on here? Like I've been in the state like a couple months and he knew everything. I'm like, that's creepy, man. What's, am I like under investigation or something? What's going on? He's like, Oh, it's just my job. I'm like, no, there's no way you know every single thing about every single person. Right. Like there's something. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that creeped me out. But yeah, they, um, they know my animals at least. Um, (laughs) I don't care. I'm not doing anything illegal. I'm happy to if they're going to come by, but it just uh, it's interesting when when you have animals that are different. When someone actually recognizes them, and then when that person happens to be law enforcement, and it's like, uh oh, <laughs> no. why do you? Yeah, that's... I'd be creeped out. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I I like that people don't know what they are, and I can try to educate people. Though that's that's kind of a fun thing about the animals. Yeah, and that I mean, they come. if we go to a show and 
I mean, people don't even know what a corn snake is. I mean, imagine seeing a blackhead or neotropical bird snake. Or... Yeah. That's like yeah. explaining, splitting the atom to them or something. <laughs> I don't know. How do you go about educating someone from scratch? And a quickly, you know, time thing during a, sh- a show. Oh, those, I, I don't, I don't want to say I don't bother. I, I, just, I just, you know, these are neotropical bird snakes, puffing bird snake. Usually when I say fire next for notice, they glaze over and walk away. So <laughs> that's my, my trick. Throw the, throw the Latin at them and then they kind of, okay, out of my realm. See you later. I'm going to start cool. doing Pantherophis cutata to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> we had a, a show and tell in Chicago and I was with the Herb Society up there. And uh, one of our members, her, his, I mean, he's a scientist, his wife's a scientist. Uh, they both have multiple, or the wife has a second doctorate. They both are doctors. Uh, their daughters were brilliant. And their daughter at like five or six years old was doing a show and tell with corn snakes. And they were, I don't think it was still a Laffy or they just, she hadn't changed it or whatever. Or no, I think she did. She did change it, but um, she said that she found out about the change after she she did her poster board or whatever. And uh, she came in, she's doing her whole talk about her corn snake. And she's like, this is a Laffy Gutata and goes through everything. And it was born on her birthday and blah, blah, blah. And someone asked, well, little girl, what's your what's your snake's name? And she's like, a Laffy <laughs> Gutata. <laughs> It's like the cutest thing ever. Like it doesn't have a name, bitch. It's genus and species. Here you go. <laughs> wow, at five, that's pretty awesome. She's really yeah. fed up with your shit. Oh, yeah. Really? <laughs> I just woke up from my nap, Jerry. <laughs> so, I mean, talking about Pantherophis, since we have the opportunity to do so, Bearedi, which is a very easy Latin name for us to get, but. Um, so when did you start working with them? Do you have certain locales, Mexican, U.S.? What are you working with? I just have U.S. Um, animals, and uh, the hypos blew me away years ago, and I've always wanted to work with them and just kind of had them and got rid of them as things moved in and out of the collection. Uh, they're another one that just the difficulty of selling the babies annoyed me with them, but the babies are so easy. I mean, I've literally – quite literally as a joke gave a baby bear it's coming out of the egg a pinky and the thing ate it still in the egg it had to come out of the egg to swallow the pinky i mean they are stupidly easy they're wonderful animals and they're absolutely beautiful like i don't know anybody that can i don't know how anybody can look at a bear's in person up close and not find the beauty in them but the babies are just black and gray and people don't know what they are despite them being a native species it's just like the, the depression of modern herpiculture, it, it lives in your country. You should know what this is, but you don't. So that kind of drives me nuts. But I, I have hypos in, um, I have one animal I collected myself in Loma Alta on 270, 277? Yeah, 277 Loma Alta. Or no, um, crap. Anyway, it's Texas locality. Not Loma Alta. What's the other one? Say Christmas Mountains. I was about to say all I know is Christmas Mountains. It's the only locality I remember. Uh, no, it's uh, Black it's, it's a great band. Blah, blah 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 blah. It's a great band locality. No one cares about There's Bears like locality. FM one fifty two. Well, I mean, with gray bands, it makes sense because they actually are different looking. You can see it, but Bears, no one cares. You can also find every phenotype at 
every locality too. Like there'll be, you know, your Blair's phase at a bunch of different localities. So it's kind of confusing. <laughs> Not really. The um their their phenotypes are fairly um certain roads have them both. Juno will have both. But you get down to River Road, they're very distinct looking River Road. Black Gap has a very distinct look. Um I almost had it. The damn city north of Del Rio. But I went out there to collect it, and uh, there was one on a rock cut I thought was actually a gray band. It was a probably 30-inch long bear. That it just had beautiful bright orange circles down its back like a gray band. And I went flying out there, and I was at first disappointed this animal was just the Bairds. But then I got back to the room, and I was looking at them like, this thing is amazing. I really love this animal. So I, I, that was one of the only animals I brought back from that trip. But... Um, I still have him to this day. He's an awesome animal. I would love to produce more out of his uh, lineage. I did some a couple of years ago and two years ago and three years ago, but then my female didn't go this year for some reason. So I'm hoping this coming season, she'll finally get back on the, the money train. Got to earn those feeders. <laughs> <laughs> so did your, was your female captive born or was it also caught at a similar location? No, she's a, a hypo. Okay. Yeah. So did you see a hypo. any of his phenotype passed on? Um, no, I ended up selling them. His was just as two years ago, and I sold almost all of them off, and then I only kept back two, and then um, somebody else wanted those. And I just I had a bunch of other projects going on, so I was happy to sell them off to somebody who was really interested in them. So I haven't got a chance to see what I am look like at yearling or anything. Right. I mean, is that the rough part? Does that keep you kind of out of, I mean, cause you, you want to keep back. I mean, how could you pick out one from a clutch off the rail? Yeah. It, <laughs> I, I've got my problem is I have too many blackheads and too many projects with that. And then with the, um, Pacilla notice, I definitely want to keep some of those. And then with my sulfurous, I have, the red phenotype that's popping up that seems to be a codominant hypo trait. And then some of those are don't seem to have the red or the hyponess to them where they're, they're not straight black. They're kind of grayish or one in particular, but it's got really nice red bands. So now there's another one I keep back. And every one of those is a, at least a four foot enclosure, if not bigger. So it just gets really difficult when the stuff I keep is big. I got yeah, a bunch but of stuff when you saw that 50k uh, albino, it'll just <laughs> cover it all. Then I could buy some some buildings. That that's the plan. <laughs> I got two buildings, 20 by 24. I'm going to put side by side. That's about 35k. So we'll see. There you go. Oh, so you literally You'll have, have some... it planned out very specifically. <laughs> well, with with electric and security and uh, the, the thermostats and everything else, yeah. Now, yeah, I mean, are you like a lot of us to where, I mean, you get money from your animals? Obviously, you've been really successful this year, and it just goes back to buying animals and caging and all that shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm buying animals, and my wife's telling me I can't buy animals, and I'm pointing out to her that I've made a bunch of money this year, and I'm only buying animals with that animal money, which is the deal. But... Since I made a bunch of money this year, I'm trying to buy a bunch of stuff, and she doesn't like that. And I get it. There's a point where I shouldn't be going into such a high 
purchase point, but I need them. <laughs> no one needs a snake. Some of us do. No one needs a snake. <laughs> oh, I need a tegu right now. I need a couple. It's going to fill little project holes so here there and there. are more things you oh, want. Oh, yeah. You, I saw something with four legs on your Instagram account. <laughs> What's going on? Oh, yeah. I got blue tegus. I got a, um, and I got some reds as well. Um uh, Hopefully they'll they'll go for me. I've, I've not been as successful with those. I've gotten like one or two clutches out of a bunch of females each year, instead of five or six or seven clutches like I should be getting. So hopefully this year I'll have more of those. I have to try try again, as they say. Do you keep them outside in Florida? Oh yeah. Right now they're in inside at home because it's supposed to get cold. The female blues tend to, um, well, not the females, but just blues in general, don't seem to dig. They kind of like, they bury themselves just barely under the surface. And then if it gets too cold, they die. Wow. So those come in. Reds, on the other hand, will like dig straight down. Like summer, winter, they don't care. They're just digging machines. So they're, it's interesting to see a different species behave really differently. Uh, the blues come from an area where they're not, it doesn't get as cold. So they're just not used to doing that. Yeah. You know, program for that. They don't have that instinct, but the reds are like, well, let's see where China is. And <laughs> <laughs> that's a problem because I threw some reds into an enclosure that had housed blues for a while and they dug right the hell out of it. Like uh, two years of blues in this, in this enclosure never had a problem. The reds were out in like an hour. Wow. What the hell? So how do you keep yeah. the reds in? What are you doing to keep them in an enclosure? I upgraded my cages to where I uh, put a smaller mesh along the bottom. They all have mesh along the bottom, but my original mail I got in that I planned the cages based off of was gigantic. And the females are much, you know, they're half the size. The male's head was, you know, like that big across. The females are like that big across. So it's it's insane how much smaller they are. So I wasn't prepared for that. And the reds I put out, they were juvenile reds too. So they weren't like they were massive, like the big adult reds. Uh, but I, I just did smaller, a smaller mesh on the bottom, smaller mesh on top. And now after do you, I saw my mistake. Do you bury that? I mean, yeah. how far? Or how I far? give them like, <laughs> I try to give them four to six inches of soil at least. Um but I got to carry all that soil to them. So <laughs> a lot of damn dirt, man. <laughs> and they're, they're in four by eight enclosures. The reds are in uh five by eight. So to fill five feet by eight feet, six inches or more deep is. That's a shit ton. Yeah. I, I'm really contemplating redoing the cages completely again and just having somebody truck in a, a whole truckload of dirt. And just dump it where I can get it because I ended up. Um, I I did dig a, a pond, quote unquote. I'd never put the liner in, and I was using all that dirt. So now I can't. I can't even like fill the hole back in because I used it all. <laughs> but then I look at the pond, this hole I have in my backyard, and it's like, damn, that's a lot of dirt. <laughs> like I probably put a full a full dump truck load of dirt into the the um what I got three six ten twelve enclosures. Wow. I probably have a full dump truck load of dirt in there and you did that all yourself yeah how long did that take uh it was i did like three cages then i did three more then i did 
too. So it wasn't like I did all at the same time. But um, each enclosure is a couple weeks being able to get the time to get out there and it, mostly the energy because I'm getting older and fatter and less able to carry big, not even like I can only do like four or five shovelfuls of dirt in, a, in, the, in the cans I was using, then they got too heavy. Turns out dirt's heavy, so you have to lift it into an enclosure. Wasn't fun. So do you my best workout like, in years? Uh, do you try to like plant over the dirt or anything, or you just keep it loose and they dig all in there? Uh, I have some enclosures you can't see the bottom of it because the plants have all grown up, and other enclosures where the tegus just tear it up and they nothing can grow. But when they go down for the winter, uh, the plants all get a chance to grow but it's mostly weeds. Um, uh, Abbas Biden, the, um, I'm sure you, I'm not sure if they're here in Texas or not. The, the white flowers, the yellow centers that have the little um, sticks with the two little prongs at the end that stick to your socks and pants and everything. It's a native species. It's a butterfly plant, but they're, they're, they grow through anything. Um, but the only problem with those is they seem, fire ants seem to love growing, um, having their their nest in the roots of those plants it's I, I can't think of what the common name is on them i've only i only know the latin name now because of the they're, they're a butterfly nectar source i read all these butterfly Wait, books can you say it just for it's albus albus biden a l a l b a s uh then the second the the species is b-i-d-e-n it's a super common weed. They're it's, like it's everywhere. Joe Biden's <laughs> favorite plant. That's what, it, when, when that's I, what it came up in Google. <laughs> Hopefully, I'm saying that right. Someone's gonna be like, "You're an idiot." That's not the right thing at all. It's what's in my head, though. But anyways, th those those grow all over the the um, enclosure like instantly. And then there's some of the shepherd's other shepherd's needles or beggar ticks. Yeah, they're called. There you go. Okay. The the general things you hate to have around you they all grow instantly in the enclosure of course and then i try to i get papaya in there all the times so i feed them papaya so they'll end up being a papaya plant that grows through the top of the enclosure and i gotta yank it out before it spreads all the mesh out oh so then, the roots will actually grow and then break the mesh that you put on the bottom no through the top because then oh, the, I already had a hat where papaya grew up. I'm like, great, I got papaya. That's awesome. I'll have free fruit. Turns out papaya fruit in the winter. Nothing, I have nothing to eat the damn thing. <laughs> yeah. Whatever they do. The trunk I got on the ones like a, probably a five or six inch across trunk. And it just grew right through the mesh and spread it right out. And then the hurricane came and like half killed the plants. And now I have this like space in the side of the, the trunk of the tree where the Part of it had died off then it came back to life with half a trunk <laughs> magical They're... papaya plant yeah it turns out papaya are weeds too who knew now i mean that seems so scary i mean the whole obviously you florida guys are used to it but i mean having outdoor enclosures hurricanes i mean do the cages flood i mean what do you do oh well that's that's the reason i i dump in the dirt with the meshes, so there's not they're they're above the the neutral ground of, of the area. So all my cages are at least six to eight inches taller than everything around them. So they'll drain out. Um, I've never had standing water in the enclosures. I've the first couple storms that came through and the first hurricane that came through, I was out there 
with an umbrella and a flashlight checking to see if there was they're flooding the cages. The animals are all inside. I was just doing it just to see. Like, here's the worst rain I'm ever going to see. What's it, what's the cage doing? And they all drained out fine. So I was thrilled with that. But it, it's a little creepy because the the reds again they burrow like crazy, but they can't form a proper burrow because I don't have enough dirt for them. So when it pours rain, I'm always worried they're going to drown. Right. But you know, I'll try to like go out there and pull them out of the dirt if I could find them. But they'll they'll bury so much I can't find them sometimes. But they all they all live. They know what they're doing. <laughs> That's why. So, I mean, is there anything that you're changing to kind of try to, like you said, you haven't been like too successful with them, a little successful, but I mean, what are you tweaking in order to try and change that? Well, I, I am seriously trying to get buildings put in my backyard. And once I do that, I'm going to try to rebuild the cages in a different orientation so they get better uh, sun. Because right now, just their orientation sucks because the sun's just not in the right spot for them. But then on the, I go down to Ty Park's place and he's got shade cloth over all his enclosures. So it's apparently not the sun because he doesn't, they don't even get full sun with him. But I just want to get mine to have direct sun on the cages. I just pick my orientation for how I align my cages poorly. And they're right next to my fence because that's where it made sense to put them next to the fence. And the fence blocks the sun all winter long for a couple of the cages. So. Now, for the, the babies that you have had, I mean, I don't know anything really about lizards. So, I mean, did those seem to have any trouble getting going? No, the tegus are, are rock solid little animals. As long as you give them calcium and UV and then a bunch of food, they'll just eat and grow like crazy. Um, I don't I don't think I feed as much as a lot of people do because some people have their animals up to almost adult size in nine months. Wow. Um, I feed all my animals, but I'm... Uh, I've talked to a few people. I'm like, well, what are you doing to feed them? They're like, well, I just feed them until they're full. I'm like, that's that doesn't seem like that really. <laughs> it just seems like a lot because they'll just keep eating, 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 and they'll they'll like their bellies will be triple the size of their body. It just seems excessive to me. It seems like you're uh, almost like what people used to do with power feeding corn snakes back in the day. Like, yes, you can do that, but is that really the best thing for them? So I've just been hesitating on the side of caution and feeding them slower. If individual, individuals want to buy animals from me and then do that style of feeding, uh, maybe it's the right thing. I don't know, but I'm just trying to like learn as I go with these. I'm still fairly new with those as well. Yeah, I think it's uh, snake guys are going to be more hesitant to feed things so often, and because snakes always pretty much have right. negative, you know, effects to that type Power of style feeding. feeding. Yeah. And I don't know, I, I'm, I'm super lucky that uh, Russ Gurley, who used to assist with all of the NARBCs and he's a, a book editor and a teacher and he's just super well connected, but he's just very quiet. A lot of people don't know his name. Um, brilliant guy. He's editor for a bunch of the hurt books we have out in our hands today. Um, uh, the the and Python book that just came out. He was he assisted with that one as well. Um, but anyways, I'm friends with Russ and I mentioned to him at Daytona that I was talking about doing blue tegus and we started talking and he's like, well, here's a breeder loan. And he sent me some animals, but they're the original stock that came in. So I've kind of like stumbled into some of the best bloodlines you can get just by, you know, being friends with the right person. 
Um, so I, I've produced some beautiful babies and sold them off to people. And then I'm getting pictures back to people. I'm like, holy shit, that's crazy blue. <laughs> I, I, the one I held back turned out crazy blue too. I'm like, well, because they, they're uh, blue tagus are not blue. They're black and white, but in the right light, they glow. They're like rainbow boas. They just glow blue. They're amazing, but only the right lineage of those animals do that. Like you have to have the right stock to be able to get that. I didn't realize that's what I was dealing with even at first. Like Russ, like, oh, these are great bloodlines and these, these should do good for you. And I didn't question that, but I didn't really think it through at all. But the first couple of years I was seeing them produce and what the babies turned into, I was just blown away. I had no idea. So. <laughs> so is that something that you keep on? I mean, you're going to hold back babies and expand that project or is that just kind of a side thing? It's a lot of space and a lot of food. Um, I, I'm definitely happy to have what I have. I don't know if I'm going to get too many more. Um, I, I'm trying to chase the albino gene a little bit. Um, it just... <laughs> Space and time and food is the problem. I think I need to do something that's a little bit slower, like some tortoises or something instead. <laughs> so that being said, is there a wish list that you plan on in the future? Honey, I'm home. <laughs> um, I'm going to do, I'm trying to get, uh, I think I'm going to do spider tortoises. Um, or not spider. Um, yeah. Uh, the Indian, or star tortoises. That's why I'm saying it wrong. My coworkers throwing me off here. Um, the Indian stars are. Um, I'm trying to do some investigation now. I don't know that much about tortoises, basically, and I'm trying to find out which stars will do best in Florida. It seems like there's apparently some of the the stars do well and some of them do not. The humidity is just too much for them. Right. You know yeah. nothing about things with legs. Well, that, well, it seems like, I mean, those tend to be pretty long-term investments as far as time. You know, they take a long time yeah. to get to an adult age, breeding age. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting older, so I need to slow down and get things that are slower so I can catch them. <laughs> Listen, you got plenty of time. I mean, you could spare your 25 years or something to wait for a tortoise to get to uh, adult Start. age. Six, eight years. You're right. Yeah, they're not as bad as um, I was looking into. I forget what. Aldabras and, and Aldabras and, and Galops take until their late teens. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's an investment for sure. If you're going to buy babies. And well, it's actually babies a problem. $5,000 too, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, with those, they they go up like a grand a year in, in value. Like an 18-year-old Galapagos tortoise is worth 18000 or more. Oh, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> but up where you guys are at, you've got Blanding's turtles, a native species. They don't reach sexual maturity until they're in their late teens either. That's one of their problems with their, their um, uh, populations in the wild there is they're, they're not doing well. Yeah, I mean, the chances of you getting hit by a car grow up exponentially when you, it takes 18 you know, years for you to grow to maturity. Yeah, there's a, a whole bunch of terrible things with their natural history, actually. And tortoises so. in general are just, I mean, especially in the Asian countries and people eating them. And they don't do very, they don't run away very well from predators or people. Yeah. Well, the Blanding's turtles up there have um, 
their they need survival ship of their nest near 70 percent and their their baby recruitment from year to year has to be in like this high 60 percentile up to 90 percentile plus for adults like they a natural native habitat does not lose adult planting turtles for any reason like they might lose one to basically to old age that's it and in human influence habitat the Coyotes, raccoons, possums are all eating the eggs. There's nest survival ships down in the gutter, and then the car impacts, and then they're they're nesting on the um, train tracks in a lot of areas up there. So they're getting stuck in between the train tracks and flipped over and dying. So there's a lot of ghost populations up there. It's amazing. But that when I was with the Chicago Herb Society, like I'm not a turtle guy, but we had these amazing speakers come in that we gave you the whole rundown on it. It's just like, holy crap. And then like, you see the same thing repeated over and over again with a whole bunch of the species up there that are, that are imperiled. So it's kind of sad that we have like the same problem for multiple species and we could help it, but no one's willing to spend the money on it. Right. Sadly. Go ahead. What were you saying? Oh, I was just telling you, it's, it's time. It's Jason, time. thank you so much for being on with us. So if anyone would like to check out what you got going on over there, I mean, where can they follow you or reach out to you? I guess I can't talk about things with legs with you guys. Just you're ready to go now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'm a, well, I'm also a time stickler when we get to two hours. Also, don't you have a steak waiting for you? Yes, yeah, true. Ooh. Take and cold beer downstairs. So this is the go. But yeah, also things with things with legs are. Um, yeah, I enjoy it. <laughs> you enjoy anything. Yeah. Um, but uh, yes, where can people <laughs> reach out or co- contact you? I'm completely unoriginal everywhere. It's Snakes Unlimited hyphen or dash Jason Hood. Whether it's uh, actually I'm only on Instagram and Facebook. I don't do other other. I'm too old for other stuff. I just started Instagram. A month or two ago that was the uh was when my good. nephew told me that no one goes on facebook anymore that i, I figured i had to at least do instagram <laughs> and you don't have to deal with the bullshit i mean really instagram it's is just pictures, pictures. Of snakes and reptiles yeah yeah i've only gotten a few weird requests from people that aren't obviously real people so far on instagram where <laughs> i'm still getting a dozen or so a day on Facebook, Joe gets like ridiculous amounts of the bots. And I have not, I mean, none of the webcam links work, so I don't know what's going on. <laughs> not funny. My credit card got hacked again, but I don't, the webcam don't work. Yeah, yeah no, I, I got, I got one, that I, if you want, I got one one message on Instagram so far. I'm pretty sure it's a legit uh, cam girl if you want it. I can. <laughs> Well, if you want to reach out to us, you can message us on Port City Pythons, but only if you're a real person. And you can contact us on Facebook, Port City Pythons, YouTube, Port City Pythons, PortCityPythons.com. Port City Pythons. Uh, Gmail is at com. Like we said in the beginning, we have t-shirts available. Uh, no snakes right now. We only have one more show before we go on our... Uh, Christmas hiatus. Well, we will be embarking on things with legs. Excuse me? Yeah, we have <laughs> four-legged prehistoric creatures we're talking about next week. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. You no, I'm think... not buying them. Oh, no. my God. I was about to kill you. I'm I thought you, you said embarking <laughs> like 
we were gonna have some four-legged things at our house and i was about to yeah, go we have a dog <laughs> we have mice too now guys if you didn't know Ugh, let's not talk about that um okay Whew. heart rate went up real high just now with that statement well first crack show let's just put it at that what okay yeah apparently you don't know who we have on next week but yes we will be having a crocodile. Yeah, show. we can't tell it because then they won't come on. Yeah, it's a curse. Okay. Wow. Terrible outro. Thank you, Jason, so much for coming I on. I was waiting for the reveal here. Who's coming on? Come Wait. on. No, we can't say it because every time we tell someone, something happens and the person like doesn't come on or like technology fails. Like literally every time. So I we almost didn't make this happen tonight, so I understand. <laughs> oh, I'm so are... thrown off because we we came out on Sunday, and I thought it was Monday, and then I thought this was going to be on Tuesday, and I'm like, I don't know what day of the week it is. <laughs> yeah, when you <laughs> you're like in a half hour or in 24 hours, I'm like, well, if you're good for a half hour, I guess we can still do. That, that was a serious question because I was just like, wait a second, you what the oh hell, <laughs> I, we were going out for steak. Um, oh so no, yeah, was, you didn't have to change shit around. We literally have changed the day of the podcast before. It's not a big deal. I'm sorry, but oh no, I, it's I, I, if I if I could tell you I'm going to do something, I try to do it. I just didn't uh, like oh crap. We were making plans and I looked at my phone. I'm like, uh oh. <laughs> Is it tonight? <laughs> Crap. Well, we That's right. sincerely appreciate it. As, as we already discussed before we got on air, you guys don't know where I am and used to live nearby here, so there's nothing to do here. I mean, but you're Literally. at a party house, so... Yeah, we're going to go downstairs and play pool and, and slot machines that don't pan out any money. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you put it that way, that sounds depressing, but... There's, we've got a gun range in the backyard, but no guns. So, <laughs> well, I'm sure you could find some something. <laughs> Ask we, neighbor. That's ten miles away. This this place is so Texas. If you guys are on video, there's a a gun above the fireplace, but it's in the cement. I was expecting it to be like uh, in Ace Ventura. He's like, it's a lovely room of death. I thought that's what it would look like in the living room. Oh, that's downstairs. <laughs> Don't worry. There's got to be dead animals somewhere plastered. Yeah, it can't be walls. Texas without a dead animal. There, um, yeah, we only got antlers up here, but downstairs it's it's a wall of death. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is but. the worst outro ever. But thank you again, Jason. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for watching. Have a good night.